Erotic, erotic, erotic. Erotic, erotic, erotic. Erotic, erotic, erotic. Welcome back to another episode of Erotic Embodiment. I am your host, Katie Smiles. How you feeling? Uh, I know that this season's astrology has definitely been one of transition. Uh, I am preparing your full moon horoscopes, which I will be sharing in about a week. Uh, but this week it felt important to uh, offer some support in another way. Um... I've been reflecting a lot on my own erotic embodiment, specifically as a Cancer Moon. Uh, For those who don't know, I am a Capricorn Sun, Cancer Moon, which means I was born uh, really close. Uh, Yeah, like extremely close to a full moon because my sun and my moon, I think, are right at like 13 and 14 degrees, uh, respectively. And as I explore my moon sign, and being a Cancer Moon, and how the Moon is actually in celebrate, like in a big celebration, and being in Cancer, I think about how that was often repressed or oppressed um, a lot in my childhood. Um, and there's a lot of things you can read about with Cancer Moons in this relationship around autonomy and safety and security and how it can be really difficult to support because there's so much information around intuition and psychic ability and instinct. Um, But systems of oppression are not built to support that. And so then, you know, black mothers, I have a black mother and black fathers, I have black fathers, but I'm also a child of blended families, when I think of black parents um, and their ability and their desire to keep me safe, uh, I see the ways that they shunned or encouraged me to step away from my instincts um, because they thought or they knew that by relying on my instincts, I could end up severely harmed. Uh, be it physically, emotionally, spiritually. Uh, and as I get older, and for those who don't know, I'm going through my Saturn return. Um, I've had to come to terms with undoing that and the grief and just the day-to-day work that that comes with. Um, I'm also bringing into this conversation that it's fucking Pride Month, bitch. Happy Pride, happy Pride, happy Pride. Good morning, good morning, happy Pride. Good morning, good morning, happy Pride. Good evening, good afternoon. Did you know it was Pride Month? Bitch, it is Pride Month. Uh, if you have not, if you don't follow me on Instagram, I highly encourage you to. Uh, it is fantastic on my side of the internet. And so there has been just all kinds of good pride things going on. Um, and when I think about pride, uh, I am thinking about a recent teacher that I discovered, Minerva, uh, who's information will be in the show notes and she did a 
great workshop with Renee from Embodied Astrology. And she talked about how the ancestors that we call may not be the ancestors that are ancestors that are supporting us. They also may not be the ancestors that can support us. Uh, and I also am a big follower of Jessica Leonardo. And she talks about how in healing ancestral trauma, it sometimes isn't going to look like you and your ma or you and your dad or you and your grandmother sitting down and having this kumbaya moment. Like Lauren Hill said it best one day that, you know, it starts with your block. And so, so much of working with ancestors is also like working with self. And then when I think about Pride Month, I think about this this emboldenedness to feel connected to women who were down for a fucking riot. They were down for advocating for and living within their intuitive and instinctual bodies at all costs. Like they were literally willing to throw bricks for the shit. What... What a time uh, to be able to witness them and, and honor them in this moment. And what a blessing. What a blessing to be able to cite them as ancestors that we may not know, um, but that we are learning. We are actively learning. Um, and so, yeah, with us... Coming out of this eclipse season, right, the last eclipse was the last full moon, so about a month out, and that Mercury retrograde um, hitting that 26 degrees Taurus, I've already been looking at the full moon, and Mercury will be at like, literally zero degrees Gemini, right, like there is this sensation around beginning and ending and transitioning and movement. Um, if you remember some of the conversations that I started back in tourist season, and even if we go back to like airy season, you know, there's been a lot of collective, what it feels like in my body, like surging energy, like the cat's out of the bag, the rivers are flowing and maybe overflowing in some places, um, and we are creating containers for that water to be held in ways that is applicable for our health and our wealth, right? Like no longer can the containers that have existed before last because, right, like they're not holding our most vulnerable, our most marginalized with care. And when I think about Pride Month and when I think about myself as a Cancer Moon, in rage work, what that means to me, I think it means really being clear that I care. And creating those containers is a way that I can show that care. And so with all that said, it felt really, really sweet and necessary to offer the uses of the erotic by Audre Lorde. Um as a source of comfort and strength and wisdom during this time. I hope that me reading this to you feels like a lullaby. It feels like a good night story. It feels like a good morning story. 
it feels like an affirmation, it feels like a mantra, and it feels like a salve. Um, and it feels like I'm holding your hand through this falling away and birth. So without further ado, this is Uses of the Erotic, The Erotic as Power by Audrey Lord. There are many kinds of power, used and unused, acknowledged or otherwise. The erotic is a resource within each of us that lies deeply in a female and spiritual plane. Firmly rooted in the power of our unexpressed or unrecognized feeling. In order to perpetuate itself, every oppression must corrupt or distort those various sources of power within the culture of the oppressed that can provide energy for change. For women, this has meant a suppression of the erotic as a considered source of power and information within our lives. We have been taught to suspect this resource, vilified, abused, and devalued within Western society. On the one hand, the superficially erotic has been encouraged as a sign of female inferiority. On the other hand, women have been made to suffer and to feel both contemptible and suspect by virtue of its existence. It is a short step from there to the false belief that only by the suppression of the erotic within our lives and consciousness can women be truly strong. But that strength is illusory where it is fashioned within the context of male models of power. As women, we have come to distrust that power, which rises from our deepest and non-rational knowledge. We have been warned against it all of our lives by the male world, by the male world, which values this depth of feeling enough only to keep women around in order to exercise it in the service of men but which fears this same death too much to examine the possibilities of it within themselves. So we, as women, are maintained at a distant, inferior position to be psychically milked much the same way ants maintain colonies of aphids to provide a life-giving substance for their masters. But the erotic offers a well of replenishing and provocative force to the woman who does not fear its revelation nor succumb to believe that sensation is enough. 
The erotic has often been misnamed by men and used against women. It has been made to it has been made into the confused, the trivial, the psychotic, the plasticized sensation. For this reason, we have often turned away from the exploration and consideration of the erotic as a source of power and information, confusing it with its opposite, the pornographic. But pornography is a direct denial of the power of the erotic, for it represents the suppression of true feeling. Pornography emphasizes sensation without feeling. The erotic is a measure between the beginnings of our sense of self and the chaos of our strongest feelings. It is an internal sense of satisfaction to which once we have experienced it, we know we can aspire. For having experienced the fullness of this depth of feeling and recognizing its power and honor and self-respect, we can require no less of ourselves. It is never easy to demand the most from ourselves, from our lives, from our work. To encourage excellence is to go beyond the encouraged mediocrity of our society, is to encourage excellence. But giving into the fear of feeling and working to capacity is a luxury only the unintentional can afford. And the unintentional are those who do not wish to guide their own destinies. This internal requirement towards excellence, which we learn from the erotic, must not be misconstructed, misconstrued, I'm sorry, as demanding the impossible from ourselves, nor from others. Such a demand incapacitates everyone in the process. For the erotic is not a question only of what we do. It is a question of how acutely and fully we can feel in the doing. Once we know the extent to which we are capable of feeling that sense of satisfaction and completion, we can then observe which of our various life endeavors bring us closest to that fullness. The aim of each thing which we do is to make our lives and the lives of our children richer and more possible. Within the celebration of the erotic in all our endeavors, my work becomes a conscious decision, a longed for bed which I enter gratefully and from which I rise up empowered. Of course, women so empowered are dangerous. So we are taught to separate the erotic demand from most vital areas of our lives, other than sex. And the lack of concern for the erotic root and satisfactions of our work is felt 
in our disaffection from so much of what we do. For instance, how often do we truly love our work, even at its most difficult? The principal horror of any system which defines the good in terms of profit rather than in terms of human need or which defines human need to the exclusion of the psychic and emotional components of that need. The principal horror of such a system is that it robs our work of its erotic value, its erotic power and life appeal, life appeal and fulfillment. Such a system reduces work to a travesty of necessities, a duty by which we earn bread or oblivion for ourselves and those we love. But this is tantamount to blinding a painter and then telling her to improve her work and to enjoy the act of painting. It is not only next to impossible, it is also profoundly cruel. As women, we need to examine the ways in which our world can be truly different. I am speaking here of necessity for reassessing the quality of all the aspects of our lives and of our work and of how we move toward and through them. The very word erotic comes from the Greek word eros, the personification of love in all aspects, born of chaos and personifying creative power and harmony. When I speak of the erotic, then I speak of it as an assertion of the life force of women, of that creative energy empowered, the knowledge and the use of which we are now reclaiming in our language, our history, our dancing, our loving, our work, our lives. There are frequent attempts to equate pornography and eroticism, two diametrically opposed uses of the sexual. Because of these attempts, it has become fashionable to separate the spiritual, psychic and emotional from the political. Excuse me. To see them as contradictory and antithetical. What do you mean, um, poetic revolutionary a meditating gunrunner in the same way we have attempted to separate the spiritual and the erotic thereby reducing the spiritual to a world of flattened effect a world of the ascetic who aspires to feel nothing but nothing is farther from the truth for the ascetic position is one of the highest fear, the gravest immobility, the severe abstinence of the ascetic becomes the ruling obsession, and it is one 
not of self-discipline, but of self-abnegation. The dichotomy between the spiritual and the political is also false, resulting from an incomplete attention to ierotic knowledge. For the bridge which connects them is formed by the erotic, the sensual, those physical, emotional, and psychic expressions of what is deepest and strongest and richest within each of us. Being shared, the passions of love in its deepest meanings. Beyond the superficial, the considered phrase, it feels right to me, acknowledges the strength of the erotic into a true knowledge. For what that means is the first and most powerful guiding light toward any understanding. And understanding is a handmaiden which can only wait upon or clarify that knowledge deeply born the erotic is the nurturer or nursemaid of all our deepest knowledge the erotic functions for me in several ways and the first is in providing the power which comes from sharing deeply any pursuit with another person. The sharing of joy, whether physical, emotional, psychic, or intellectual, forms a bridge between the sharers, which can be the basis for understanding much of what is not shared between them and lessens the threat of their difference. Another important way in which the erotic connection functions is the open and fearless underlining of my capacity for joy. In the way my body stretches to music and opens into response, hearkening to its deepest rhythms. So every level upon which I sense also opens to the erotically satisfying experience. Whether it is dancing or building a bookcase or writing a poem, examining an idea. That self-connection shared is a measure of the joy which I know myself to be capable of feeling. A reminder of my capacity for feeling. And that deep and irreplaceable knowledge of my capacity for joy comes to demand from all of my life that it can be lived within the knowledge that such satisfaction is possible and does not have to be called marriage nor God nor an afterlife. This is one reason why the erotic is so feared and so often relegated to the bedroom alone when it's recognized at all. For once we begin to feel deeply in all the aspects of our lives, we begin to, to demand from ourselves and from our life pursuits that they feel in accordance 
with that joy which we know ourselves to be capable of. Ayurvedic knowledge empowers us, becomes a lens through which we scrutinize all aspects of our existence, forcing us to evaluate those aspects honestly in terms of their relative meaning within our lives. And this is a grave responsibility projected from within each of us, not to settle for the convenient, the shoddy, the conventionally accepted, nor the merely safe. During World War II, we bought sealed plastic packets of white uncolored margarine with a tiny intense pellet of yellow coloring perched with a topaz just inside the clear skin of the bag. We would leave the margarine out for a while to soften and then we would pinch the little pellet to break it inside the bag, releasing this rich yellowness into the soft pale mass of margarine. Then taking it carefully between our fingers, we would knead it gently back and forth over and over until the color had spread throughout the whole pound of margarine, you know, thoroughly coloring it. I find the erotic such a kernel within myself. When released from its intense and constrained pellet, it flows through and colors my life with a kind of energy that heightens and sensitizes and strengthens all of my experience. We have been raised to fear the yes within ourselves, our deepest cravings. But once recognized, those which do not enhance our future lose their power and can be altered. The fear of our desires keeps them suspect and indiscriminately powerful. For to suppress any truth is to give it strength beyond endurance. The fear that we cannot grow beyond whatever distortions we may find within ourselves keeps us docile and loyal and obedient, externally defined, and leads us to accept many facets of our oppression as women. When we live outside ourselves, and by that I mean on external directives, only rather than our internal knowledge and needs. When we live away from those erotic gods from within ourselves, then our lives are limited by our external and alien forms and we conform to the needs of a structure that is not based on human need let alone in individuals but when we begin to live from within outward in touch with the power of the erotic within ourselves and allowing that power to inform and illuminate our actions upon the world around us, then we begin to be responsible 
to ourselves in the deepest sense. For as we begin to recognize our deepest feelings, we begin to give up of necessity, being satisfied with suffering and self-negation. And with the numbness, which so often seems like their only alternative in society. Our acts against oppression become integral with self, motivated and empowered from within. In touch with the erotic, I become less willing to accept powerlessness or those other supplied states of being which are not native to me, such as resignation, despair, self-effacement, depression, self-denial. And yes, there is hierarchy. There is a difference between painting a back fence and writing a poem, but only one of quantity. And there's for me no difference between writing a good poem and moving into sunlight against the body of a woman I love. This brings me to the last consideration of the erotic. To share the power of each other's feelings is different from using another's feelings as we would use a Kleenex. When we look the other way from our experience, erotic or otherwise, we use rather than share the feelings of those others who participate in the experience within us or with us. And use without consent of the used is abuse. In order to be utilized, our erotic feelings must be recognized. The need for sharing deep feeling is a human need. But within the European-American tradition, this need is satisfied by a certain proscribed erotic comings together. These occasions are almost always characterized by a simultaneous looking away, a pretense of calling them something else, whether religion, a fit, mob violence, or even playing doctor. And this misnaming of the need in the deed give rise to that distortion which results in pornography and obscenity, the abuse of feeling. When we look away from the importance of the erotic in the development and sustenance of our power, or when we look away from ourselves as we satisfy our erotic needs in concert with others, we use each other as objects of satisfaction rather than share our joy in the satisfying, rather than make connections with our similarities and our differences. To refuse to be conscious of what we are feeling at any time, however comfortable that might seem, 
is to deny a large part of the experience and to allow ourselves to be reduced to the pornographic, the abused, and the absurd. The erotic cannot be felt secondhand. As a black lesbian feminist, I have a particular feeling, knowledge, and understanding for those sisters with whom I have danced hard, played, or even fought. This deep participation has often been the forerunner for joint concerted actions not possible before. But the erotic charge is not easily shared by women who continue to operate under an exclusively European male tradition. I know it was not available to me when I was trying to adapt my consciousness to this mode of living and sensation. Only now I find more and more women identified women brave enough to risk sharing the erotics electrical charge without having to look away and without distorting the enormously powerful and creative nature of that exchange. Recognizing the power of the erotic within our lives can give us energy to pursue genuine change within our world rather than merely settling for a shift of characters in the same weary drama. For not only do we touch our most profoundly creative source, but we do that, which is female and self-affirming in the face of a racist, patriarchal, and anti-erotic society. That was The Uses of the Erotic by Audre Lord. To finish this episode, I will offer that Renee and Rose Blaylock are offering a workshop on the Mercury Retrograde. Um, it was a two-part workshop. I want to say that the first part of the workshop is still available. You can purchase the recording. I'll put all of this in the show notes. Um, but I think that the Mercury Retrograde had the potential to bring up a lot of things. I think that a lot of the transits that we are looking at or that I am paying attention to for the full moon in Sagittarius, it feels like it's giving way to some expansiveness, some new possibilities, um, some birth. And Minerva, who I will link in the show notes, expressed how birth is the opposite of death. And they do often come together. And so I hope that that workshop maybe gives you some space to reflect and listen to other folks' reflections on, you know, what's dying and what's being birthed. And I hope that that space gives you space to both grieve and celebrate both, right? Because I think both can be really necessary, especially during this time. Lastly, Minerva offered, I want to say the recording for this is also available. And like I said, I'll leave all of this in the show notes. Um, In the workshop with Renee and Minerva on grief, 
Minerva offered how and I'm 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 maybe switching their words a little bit, so just keep that in mind. That healthy attachment does not mean detachment. It's a relationship to being fully present in the experience. And I think there is a resonance between Minerva's language and Audre Lorde's language. And that to be fully present in the death, to be fully present in the birth, is to live erotically and is to give space to newness and change. That doesn't mean that things are always going to be good and it does not mean that things are always going to be bad. But it is a devotion to being present within the totality of that experience. And I hope that this podcast is a resource, a comfort, and a tool for you to discover the ways that you need support as you live more presently. Have a great week, and I will be back with another episode for the Full Moon and Sagittarius. Y'all enjoy. I'm thinking of you.